Another little update on Al Freeberg. Um, it seems like it's been a lot longer than three weeks or so uh, since this whole incident began. Uh, and there have been plenty of dark days in between, but this last week has been better. It's been much, much better. He was transferred from, he was transferred from ICU to, to critical care and now to rehab. Um, he is awake more of the time. He is more conversant, even getting snippy when he's told he has to stay in bed. These are all positive signs. These are all good signs. It has been a much better week. Uh, just in the last few days, he's had the feeding tube removed. He is eating um, pureed food, and probably the only thing worse than hospital food is pureed hospital food. But he is eating, uh, and so we would like to continue praying for him to be able to eat more food so he gets stronger. Uh, in order to really be able to, to sustain a full rehab, he needs to be awake and, and energetic at least three hours a day, so he needs to be stronger and more alert and aware. Um, and then hopefully, after a couple of weeks of rehab there, we're hopeful that there'll be a place for him closer to home, um, and then we can... Uh, uh, feel his presence closer, even if he's not actually here. Um, I, I just keep telling people, we know this is going to be a long rehab, but I will still hold that an owl with half a brain tied behind his back is better than most of the rest of us. Um, so we have that to look forward to. Um, and I got this just the other day from Char. Uh, this is a picture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we got all that out of the way. Now we can jump into the really feel-good self-help text from the book of Revelation. But we probably ought to pray before we start. Father God, we gather before you today uh, with so much to be grateful for, for the healing process that's taking place with our our dear brother Al. Uh, we know it's going to be a long journey. We know that there will be hard days ahead, but we're thankful for the work that has already been done. Um, we're, we're, we're thankful for the fact that Shar and all the girls, the family, has been able to spend time and, and come rally around and support uh, Shar and Alan both during this process. We pray for continued healing for him, that he, that he gets uh, better at eating and is awake more, and, and that the rehab will be effective. Um, and Lord, we're grateful today for mothers and wives and sisters and members of our extended church family, uh, women who provide love and, and support and encouragement in ways that women just seem more uniquely enabled than are most men. We thank you for the gift of your word, for how it helps us grow in, in love and deed, love for you, love for each other. Um, and I pray that you help us approach your word this morning with open ears and hearts and minds to hear what you have for us, to hear what you want us to hear. Uh, block out distractions and, and wondering thoughts and whatever else might seek to get in the way of hearing what you have for us this morning. 
We thank you for your love for us, your care for us, your constant provision for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here last week, uh, and really, even if you weren't, uh, we opened a whole can of worms. We got into uh, chapter 6, so we opened up this whole can of revelatory apocalyptic worms um, as we looked at the first four seals being opened uh, in chapter 6. And those four seals described four different riders on four different colored horses, which we have come to identify, or culturally we refer to them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It sounds awesome. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Now, that, that title really suggests a, a, a close and necessary link between the opening of the seals, um, which triggers the appearance of the horsemen, and then the link between the horsemen and the return of Jesus. There, there is a linkage there. One directly leads to the other. It, that's made clear in the text. But the big question follow, coming out of this is the timing of all of these events. When does all of this begin to happen? How much time elapses between the introduction of the horseman and Jesus' eventual second coming? And that's where reasonable people become unreasonable. That's where reasonable people begin to separate and how they view this particular text and, and the rest of what follows. Now, I said last week that the predominant view of the last 150 years has been this futurist view um, which holds to a mostly literal understanding of the book of Revelation, which means that, among other things, uh, the majority of events described in Revelation have to occur just prior to Jesus' return. All of the events of Revelation are really kind of bunched together just prior before Jesus' second return. And they have to occur in the order in which they're laid out in the book. So we have to get through all the seals and then all the, all the trumpets and then the bowls before we get to the second coming. And the opening of the seals means that the period of tribulation has begun. This is very close to the time of Jesus' return. This literal chronology, this literal approach, um, leads to, or, or some say forces, the idea of a rapture, which is never mentioned specifically in the book. Um, the rapture really came about as a way to synthesize or try to make sense of some of the challenging texts, some of the, the difficult timelines when you look at this as a literal sequential period of time. But even then, futurists, those people in the rapture camp, really split as to whether the rapture occurs pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. I mean, we're kind of all over the place on this. Now, our perspective, for the most part, our, our approach to the book is more in line with the idealist view, which holds that it, this is a more spiritual approach. It's largely a spiritual allegory. Uh, and this period of tribulation, which is really just an increase in Satan's attacks against God and his creation... Uh, we're seeing more persecution, more temptation, more governmental coercion, more economic uncertainty. All of that tribulation stuff really began in earnest immediately following Jesus' resurrection. So Satan has been at work undoing God's plan since the garden, for sure. Man's sin allowed Satan a foothold, and he's been running with it ever since. The history of Israel, we look through the Old Testament, the history of Israel is a history of temptation and persecution and falling away and then returning to relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> but after Jesus defeated death, Satan then realized that his power was not unlimited. After Jesus came back from the grave, he realized, Satan realized that his time was not unlimited either. 
Jesus had won. The grave couldn't hold him. Death could not defeat him. It was just a matter of time before this became obvious to the whole world. Because Jesus said he would come back to claim his bride, and now the enemy knows that too. So Satan's determination to do as much damage as possible got kicked up a notch after the resurrection. That's the significance, as we see it, that's the significance of the slain lamb opening the seals to the scroll. It symbolized for the church, it symbolized for Satan that Jesus is not dead, that he is the victor, he will be the king for all eternity, and that he is intimately involved in human events. And there is a ticking clock. This is also the reason that Jesus told John in the beginning of the book of Revelation, write these letters to the churches. Write these letters, tell them, warn them of what is to come. Tell them about these things you're about to see, what what is going to come and impact the church, but tell them to persevere, endure. And if they hold fast to faith, then we too can be conquerors. Death will not hold us either. This is how we're going to prepare the church. So following following his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, we have this picture in, in Revelation of the slain lamb, the lion of Judah, the root of David, opening the seals and controlling the flow of history. Allowing Satan to test and try the saints, even to persecute and kill. Because he's now ramping up his efforts. But his time is short. Maybe not from our perspective, but from an eternal perspective, time is short. But Satan will not destroy the church. So the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, begin to give us a glimpse of what these tests, what these trials will look like. What they have, in fact, already been. We have already experienced conquest and conquering and war and murder and mayhem and economic collapse and famine and pestilence. All of those things have all been part of our life forever. And these are all very general descriptions of what's going to occur after the introduction of the four horsemen. Why we still wait for the return of our triumphant king. So we've gone through those first four horses and now we're looking at the fifth seal that's going to be opened, starting in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he, this is the lamb, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now this marks a pretty interesting departure from the first four seals. Right? We go from a, what was a very general overview of what has been let loose upon the world, namely Satan, his influence over unbelievers, war and famine and all those other things. We saw a picture in those first four horsemen of, of man's sinfulness that resulted in war and famine and death and all these other unspeakable atrocities that we have seen throughout time. And we, so we go from these kind of global, all-encompassing disasters to this very intimate scene that's being played out in heaven. And the fifth seal is open and John sees an altar and there's no other description of the altar here. In fact, there's no other mention of it in this whole scene. So the altar, most people believe, represents, it's the presence of God. So John sees these souls in the presence of God, 
he, he sees these souls, these saints who have been slain for the word of God, and it says, and for the witness they had borne. So there's this whole myriad, this sea of martyrs, but not just martyrs in the strict sense, but these are countless Christ followers who have been killed or who died throughout the ages and whose lives have been impacted by their faithful life and their witness. Their testimony as a Christ follower caused hardship and suffering, rejection, loss of jobs, if not outright death. Those are included too. But this is all the people who have been impacted for their faith. So this is pretty compelling because you think back to, to the seven letters to the churches. On several occasions, John wrote to those churches, even if you die for the cause of Christ, you win. The promise was you will receive eternity in paradise. And here we see those who died in service to or for the cause of Christ, here they are in heaven in the presence of God. They have this intimate relationship, close enough contact that they can appeal directly to the Lord. Now, this also shows us that there has been a period of some kind of tribulation and testing that's been going on for some time now. Because these people have been killed or died with impact from their their faithful testimony of Christ. They have faced tribulation throughout the ages. And this is a a large collection. It's It's a large gathering of saints who have been slain. They've already experienced, it seems, the effects of the four horsemen which, if we're following a, little, a literal sense, those have just been released a few verses before. This seems to suggest this has been going on for a longer period of time. So we have this assemblage of saints who have faced conquest and war and, and civilization collapse and famine and persecution and death. It just doesn't fit the timeline of the futurist as well as it does the timeline from an idealist perspective. But these martyred saints cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So in essence, they're crying out, Lord, when will this end? When will all this come to an end? Now there is an appeal here to avenge our blood, but this is not a cry for revenge as we tend to think of it. This is not... Due to those people, what they did to us, that's not the implication here. This really is a cry for justice. It's a cry for for a proper and just verdict from a God who is holy and true. And their appeal for justice begins with a recognition that the Lord is sovereign. God alone can put an end to the trials and tribulations and even the death of the faithful. God alone can grant a fair verdict and true justice. This is not unlike some of the other cries over the centuries we we have read about. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? My guess is if you've been a believer for any length of time, you've had a prayer very similar to this before. How much longer, O Lord? Now, even though the trials, the, the tribulations are over for these saints, I mean, they're dead, after all, they're still concerned, apparently, for the plight of their fellow believers. They're still concerned that justice has not been served, that the unbelievers, referred to as the earth dwellers, 
the unbelievers continue to torture and kill their fellow saints. When will Christ return for the final time to right the wrongs, to restore true justice? And the response from the sovereign Lord is illuminating. I mean, it says, first of all, each of the souls crying out were given a white robe. They cry out, when, O Lord, when will this end? And they're given a white robe. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. It was in the fifth letter we read early in the book of Revelation. To the church in Sardis, Sardis, he said, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. So the white robe is an indication of worthiness, purity, blamelessness. And it's not because of the life that we live or the life that we have lived. None of us is pure or blameless. But we're considered worthy and blameless because of the power of Jesus Christ to sanctify us, to save us. When we confess the name of Jesus, he will forgive our sins, he will count us as worthy, and he will confess us to his Father. John sees the fulfillment of that promise here. So the, the souls of all those under the altar receive white robes, and they're also told to rest a little bit longer. I think this is another really good sign for us, that heaven is a place of rest, not cloud lounging and heart playing, but free from stress, free from the turmoil of life, free from the chaos Peace, comfort, security. And I, you know, I got to admit, this last month or so has been pretty tiring. A little rest sounds really good. An eternal rest sounds better. But rest apparently does not mean detachment from the knowledge of the rest of the world. Because these souls are still aware. They're still aware of what's happening on earth, and they're still crying out for justice. And when they ask, how long must we wait? They're given an answer. The Lord says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long must we wait until the number of your fellow servants and their brothers should be complete? Now this tells us a couple of things, I think. First, this is a picture of remarkable restraint based on God's grace and mercy. The Lamb has the authority and the power to end it all now. He has the power to right all the wrongs, to put an end to the suffering of his bride, the church. He has the power to fix, fix everything now, but he waits. He waits for the last sinner to confess who's going to. He waits for the last believer destined to suffer and be persecuted and perhaps even die for the cause of Christ. Again, this might be a figurative death, but it does include martyrs. So the reference here is to the end of all suffering. It's going to come after these other things have been fulfilled. Jesus is waiting for people. Second, I think it confirms that the sovereign Lord, holy and true, knows exactly when this moment will occur. He's not going to be surprised. 
Oh, missed it. There goes John. Now's time. From before the foundations were laid, the triune God knew when this moment would come. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows when a sparrow falls, and he knows when that final confession will take place. He knows when that final persecution or death will occur. And this entire book reminds us of that fact that all of history is following God's plan. So, in a very real sense, I think, what we're going to see moving forward is that everything that comes after the fifth seal, everything that comes after this cry for justice, this crying out of the saints, everything that follows progressively reveals how the Lord is answering the prayer of the saints. Seal 6 and beyond show that judgment will come. It describes this final path to judgment. I mean, some form of judgment has already been in place. We're just not yet to the big show, the big final reveal. The fact that we've already seen and felt the effects of the first four seals is an indication that God's judgment is at work. It has been at work. He has rewarded faith through the ages. He continues to reward faith in our age. He'll continue to reward our faith until Jesus returns. He's kept his promises through the ages. He's currently keeping his promises, and he'll continue to keep his promises. But here's the part we struggle with. He often does it in ways and times that we don't understand, and frankly, we don't care for. I mean, that's the basis for the cry of the saints. It's a a lack of understanding. We don't understand what you're doing. Lord, we know you're just and fair. We know that you want to set all things right. We know that you want justice and revenge. So why not now? What are you waiting for? We don't understand why you're waiting. And the events associated with the first four seals remind us that God's judgment has been on display, but it's been restrained. He's holding back. Seal 5 reminds us that a final judgment will still come just as the saints are crying out for. And starting with seal six, he gives them, he gives us a glimpse of what final judgment is going to look like. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island were removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You get a mental image of that. So just play along here with me for a minute. Let's imagine that this is our first time reading the book of Revelation. This this is our first read-through. We don't know anything about futurism or preterism or idealism or any ism. We are ism-free. We don't know anything about this book. We haven't heard anything about pre-tribs or post-tribs or mid-tribs. Like the first century church, we simply have this letter to read. We only have what's contained right here. 
Now, if you were to read this for the first time through, how would you describe what you just read? Would you think, wow, this is kind of a tough day? B, would you think, well, this is obviously a precursor to an even worse event at some time in the future. This is not yet an extreme trial and tribulation, but it's getting there. Would you think, boy, if this isn't the end of the world, I don't want to be around for that. Or D, this is the end of the world as we know it. I'm trying to be as objective as possible. Without all of the other external influences that we've all accumulated over the years, the Left Behind series, the late great planet Earths, uh, the, the, the Schofield Reference Bible, all the other things that we've had telling us what this means, would we think, boy, this is not the end yet. I mean, the sky vanishes, mountains and islands just relocate. The sun goes dark, the moon looks like blood. Our first instinct would be, this is the end of the world, let's run to the hills. Which, as it turns out, is what people do. Things look so bad that even the kings and the great ones and the generals, the, the wealthy, the world's power brokers, everyone, slave and free, they all run to the caves to hide themselves. They beg the mountains to fall on them, rather than face the wrath of, not the lion, the lamb. The lamb who had been slain. Now, just try to consider what this means for a moment. There is going to come a time that is so bad, so severe, so extreme, that people everywhere will know, apparently with absolute certainty, that they are being punished for their deeds. They're going to hide from the lamb. They're going to hide from the wrath of the lamb. And look at the list of people mentioned here. The kings, the great ones, generals, rich, powerful, everyone, slave and free. That's a, that's a variety of classes and privilege and rank, social standing. It's kind of a who's who, a cross-culture, a cross-section of the culture. How many people, how many, how many different groups do you get there? Six. Six represents fallen humanity. Every unbeliever on earth will be impacted by this event. What we're being shown is that every person everywhere, all people everywhere will be impacted by these end time events. This does not seem to be a precursor to something more. This doesn't sound like the description of a pre-period of judgment, round one. There's no indication that this is just a portion of the wrath of the Lamb. That's just not a natural reading to this text. This reads like the end of the world. Final judgment. When things will be so bad that people will just intuitively know that they're being punished for their refusal to worship their Creator, for their refusal to follow the Lamb. And still, they would rather die than repent. They would rather be crushed by falling mountains than admit their sin and repent and follow the Lamb. This is not a pretty picture. This, this highlights our incredible ability to delude ourselves or to be deluded. And it's brought about by our sin. It's perpetuated and fed into by Satan. 
when faced with obvious judgment for a wrongdoing, people will still cling to their sin rather than admit it. I mean, this sounds terrible. This is end-of-the-world type stuff. But it also sounds kind of familiar. In Matthew 24, as Jesus and his disciples are sitting on the Mount of Olives, they begin to ask him, tell us when the end will come. What will be the signs? What should be the things we look for before the end of the world? And Jesus begins to teach them. And he mentions things. There's going to be false teachers. There are going to be false Christs in my name. People will come in my name. False teachers. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. And he says, these are the beginning of birth pains. This is part of the process. There's going to be persecution and death for the church. The sun will be darkened. There'll be no light coming from the moon. Stars will fall from heaven. And then, he said, then he would return. Now, compare that to what we're seeing here with the seals. This is how Jesus describes on the left the end times. How does this match up with what we're seeing in the first six seals? The first four introduced the four horses and riders. Um, And this is interesting. We talked about this last week that the, 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 the first rider was on a white horse, and lots of people said, this is Jesus, this is the Christ. And other people said, no, no, that's the Antichrist. And we didn't think either of those was quite right. But there is the idea of bringing conquest, the idea of conquering from the white horse. What if the conquest, what if what's being conquered is truth? What if that white horse does represent false teachers? And they're conquering truth. The twisting of truth into something that becomes meaningless. I mean, isn't that kind of a reality of our age? We're seeing that played out, I think, in front of our very eyes. We're, we've been told for months and, and months and years now that there really isn't any meaningful way to define what a woman is. I mean, that's, that's just a culturally contrived category that doesn't mean anything. There's no biological basis for determining womanhood. But then when it's leaked that Roe v. Wade might be upturn, upturned, that's an attack on women who we can't define. I mean, we're taking great pains to establish a cultural victim mentality, but what if the real victim is truth? So when Jesus says false teachers, perhaps it's truth that's going to be conquered. And he goes on to mention war and economic collapse and food shortage. Hello? I just read the other day, there's a shortage of baby formula. Have you seen that? Food shortage, economic collapse, death of various types, those who are going to face persecution. And finally, Jesus says there's going to be this great cataclysmic natural anomaly that's going to occur both land and sea. Everything we know, the natural world is going to be affected. And then he adds in verse 36. All of this is going to happen, he says, and you'll see these signs, but no one knows the day or the hour of his return. And yet, for generations, people keep trying to pinpoint the day and the hour of Jesus' return. I mean, dates have been set, and then they've been reset, and then they've been reset again. 
because Jesus was coming on Thursday. Apparently not Cinco de Mayo, but it could be the 12th of Mayo. <clears throat> People have sold their possessions and moved up to a mountaintop so that when the rapture occurs, they'll be that much closer. They'll get a head start. I don't think that's how that works. We've been reading the signs, but I think we have been misreading the signs. We've been a little selfish in how we're misreading the signs. Frankly, over time, and the more I have studied and, and tried to figure out something, make sense of something, it seems to me that the, the church's fascination with Revelation has become the classic example of missing the point. We're missing the forest for the trees. Revelation is not about interpreting signs and how they line up with current events. It's not about cracking a code. It is about assuring and reassuring the church that God rewards faith. That he will keep his promises, and it's going to happen in ways that amaze and startle us. The first three chapters of this book, call the church to remain faithful in spite of our circumstances. It says, remain faithful and persevere, endure in spite of whatever hardships you may befall. And then the rest of the book shows us the hardships that were going to befall. The intent of the book is not to cause us to watch the sky and try to match it up with newspaper headlines. The intent of the book is to cause us to bend the knee and to match up our lives with Scripture. It's meant to assure us that God is in control, and that ought to lead us to worship the God who is in control. And it's difficult not to see the sixth seal here. It's difficult not to see this as a direct result to the fifth seal. When the saints, the church, cry out, Oh, Lord, how long? When will this end? And the Lord says, Here's how it's going to end. Don't worry. I've got it. It's under control. It's coming, but not until every last unbeliever has been given the opportunity to confess. And not until the last believer has been given the opportunity to suffer and even be killed for the cause of Christ. Char said that Al said this week he was grateful for this opportunity that he's going through. He's grateful for this opportunity. We are called to identify with Christ in his life and in his suffering. And it will come to an end, but only the Lord knows when that is. But when the end comes, Satan's time to rampage will cease. And I think there's one more interesting set of numbers from this text. We talked about the six classes of people and, and how the number six represents fallen humanity. But there's another series of six mentioned in this text also. Earthquakes, sun, moon, stars, sky, mountains, and islands. Six different references to the physical earth and the sky and how they're going to be affected. Things don't look too good for our sin-plagued earth. It does sound like the end of the world as we know it. And in Isaiah, in, in Romans, in Mark, and in Second Peter, there are numerous references to the fact that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, which means the old one has to go away. 
kind of what this sounds like here. Seal 6 sounds like it's describing the end of the old heaven and the old earth. And we're going to see as we move ahead that there are similarities between the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet. In fact, there are a lot of similarities between the seals and the trumpets in general, which adds credence, I think, to the argument that, that we're being shown the same events but from different perspectives. Just something for you to keep in mind as we move forward. I think Randy's even going to address this a little more uh, next week. But whether or not we agree or disagree, I guess, on the actual meaning of the seals and trumpets and bowls, and whether we agree or disagree on the timeline that is represented in Revelation, I hope, I pray that we can all begin to see and remember that it's not the events themselves that should matter to us. It's the intent. It's the purpose. What purpose do they serve? And their intent, their purpose is to show us, to remind us that God is in charge. The Lamb is carrying out the plan. He's executing the will of the Father. The Spirit is moving unbelievers to repentance and encouraging believers to persevere and endure. Because Jesus will come like a thief in the night, like a bridegroom coming for his bride. He is going to come. So let's continue to study and pray and live like we're expecting him at any moment. Because it could be any moment. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're grateful for the chance to gather here to study your word. Um, and Lord, we know there are, there are uh, perhaps a variety of ways that one could understand this text. But Lord, I pray that we don't get so caught up in trying to find meaning and trying to draw correlation between this symbol and this event in history or whatever that we lose sight of the fact that, this, that the purpose of this book is to call the faithful to, to, remain, to remain faithful, to persevere, to endure, to continue to walk in a manner worthy of following our Christ, our Lord and our King. I pray that as we go through trials and tribulations, and we all face different challenges and different degrees of trial and tribulation, but I pray that you strengthen us, encourage us, help us find hope, even if that the only hope we have is the idea of eternity in your presence with, with rest and peace and comfort. Lord, we thank you for hearing the, the prayers, the pleas of your saints, the prayers and the pleas of your, of your people. Equip us, encourage us, help us endure as we face the challenges that lay ahead. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.